0: Take your Bibles, turn to Acts 28. You know, I was thinking on the drive-in here, what a privilege it is as a pastor to share from the Word of God every Sunday morning and and to know that as a church, we're hungry, we're interested. What a blessing that is. What a joy that is. And I know it's a a fairly unique thing. You know, we, we champion some simple things at our church in terms of, we've already talked about one, uh, of outreach and uh, our fellowship our small groups and then the teaching of the word of God you know we value this verse by verse approach that lets the Bible speak for itself and not me putting some kind of a topical thing on top of the Bible make it fit my message but we would just let the Bible breathe on its own and give it as it's you know as it's written and uh, that's not attractive to a lot of people you know <laughs> You know, There's not a, not a whole lot of buzz to that, but you, it's kind of an acquired taste, but it's a taste that I love and something that I appreciate that, that you are a part and are interested in it. So thank you for that, and uh, just want to tell you, I, I appreciate you. So Acts 28, let's pray. Father, we come together with humble hearts, ready to read your word and ready to do it, uh, ready to understand it, but we need your spirit for all of this. And so I ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning. There's a lot of things we don't know. We don't claim to know at all. We humble ourselves before you and say, we need your help. So would you transform us that we go out of here different? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So Janet and I have an aversion to going to Eureka Springs, Arkansas. We have visited many times, uh, but our last visit was about 15 years ago. And during that visit, we noticed a decidedly different culture than what we had been used to, but that was not the real reason that we're not going back. On our last visit, we had an attempted break-in in in our standalone place that we were staying at at about 2 in the morning. After talking to the owner at 2 in the morning, I'm not making this up, he assured me that his ducks were guarding the location thinking, what are you smoking? We then packed our bags and went back to Springfield on a foggy, misty morning between 2 and 3 in the morning. I assured Janet, I go, listen, I'll stay up. You know, I won't go to sleep, and you can sleep her. She goes, no, uh, I want to go home. So, so I made her go home, and I stayed for the night. And um, <laughs> No, no, I didn't do that. So it, it was a weird deal. And it may be illogical not to go back, you know, it doesn't mean, you know, that's the experience of everybody in, in Eureka Springs, but our last visit put a bad taste in their mouth. And our expectation was to have a vacation getaway, right? And our experience was more like a scene from the Escape from New York, you know, with Kurt Russell. There might be some cities that you've gone to that you've had a negative experience and you're really not interested in going back. And it makes me wonder of the Apostle Paul and how he viewed going to different locations and how he viewed those cities, you know, since he had visited them. For instance, he was driven out of the town of Antioch at Pisidia. They tried to stone him at Iconium. He was left for dead at Lystra after being dragged and stoned. He was thrown in jail at Philippi. A violent mob tried to attack him at Thessalonica. He was arrested and falsely charged in Jerusalem. Now, there's a big difference between the Apostle Paul and our little weekend getaway at Eureka Springs, right? I mean, Paul went for the purpose of the gospel, Right? And when you go for the sake of the gospel, you know, you expect that there might be some opposition. And, and such a mission supersedes your comfort. Right? I mean, when Janet and I went to Eureka Springs, it was a little vacation, comfort, relaxation, that was the purpose of the trip. Not an know about you, but being vandalized doesn't provide comfort and relaxation. So, you know, I wasn't being called by God to go to Eureka Springs. However, I am willing to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. And I remember being in Central America at a particular town where I was speaking. I was with another group. And people outside were trying to disrupt our meeting with firing off guns, with their cars, you know, revving their cars up. I had personal items that were stolen from the, the place that we're staying at. Now, I don't like any of those things, but I didn't go for vacation. I didn't go for comfort. And you just kind of expect that that might be part of the, the territory. And what we see in the life of the Apostle Paul is that he had given over his life for the sake of the gospel. Now, Rome would eventually be his undoing. It didn't happen on this trip. Uh, what we're looking at here took place at about 60 A.D., He had arrived at Rome to appeal to Caesar. Remember, he'd been on a shipwreck just before this and then got to Rome, and he was uh, appealing to Caesar because he'd been falsely accused by the Jews. And while in Rome, Paul wrote the book of Ephesians. And our text tells us that, uh, that Paul was in Rome for two years, and he was released in about 62 A.D., and after traveling to different countries to preach the gospel and encourage the church... He was arrested in a place called Troas, delivered back to Rome, and that was in about 66 A.D. It was then that he wrote the book of 2 Timothy, and it was also then that he was eventually martyred. So becoming a Christian for Paul, that meant that comfort and consumption in terms of material consumption was not his primary goal, right? Right? I mean, how do we? How do I notice the difference of my life being on a mission or being used as a vehicle for comfort and consumption? Now we know, we all know which one we we would like to have in terms of oh I, I want to be on a mission for Christ, blah blah blah. But how do we know that that is really where our life is headed? How do we know that that is our passion? That is really what I'm interested in looking at this passage for, and uh, I think we can get a clue from the Apostle Paul. So we start with verse 17. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. So it took Paul two or three days to settle in, and he decides after getting situated that he wants to meet with the Jewish leaders. he's intentional about getting with the Jews. And that was his MO. Every time he went to, he wanted to go to the synagogues, he wanted to go to the Jews first. Now estimates are that there were probably 10s that means 10 to 20 to 30,000 Jews in Rome. We don't know for sure, all of that is a guess, but uh, they have looked at the catacombs that were in Rome, and there was during that time, about, as they can figure, 12 or so different synagogues within Rome. Now, there was no ruling body over the Jews at Rome, rather a gathering of Jewish leaders of these various synagogues that had met with Paul. Paul has maintained that these charges that were against him of of having a Gentile come into this Court of the temple in Jerusalem; that they, those were false. That's what caused him to be arrested in Jerusalem, to go to Caesarea, and then to get on a boat, and then to eventually get shipped direct in Malta, and he ends up in Rome trying to give an appeal to Caesar about all of this. So, having a Jew, having a Jew deliver or have a Gentile come with him to this inner part of the temple in Jerusalem, that was called sacrilegious or you know, against the code of a Jew. Yet this didn't stop the Jews. Even though Paul didn't actually do this, he was accused of doing it, but he didn't actually do it, this didn't stop a band of Jews continuing to perpetuate this lie about Paul. Listen to James warn Paul when he was in Jerusalem. He says, And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They're all zealous for the law, and they've been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that uh, you have come. So, they know you're here and there's gonna be trouble. And so they're trying to alert Paul about this complaint from the Jewish people. I mean, they've witnessed the Jews have a people coming to Christ. And they're assuming that Paul doesn't want to have them, have them to, to do with anything related to Judaism. But that was not the case. In fact, Paul would instruct the the Gentiles to respect the Jewish laws. He never told them to give up all of their Jewishness when they came to Christ. He was a law-abiding Jew in the strictest sense. We read in Philippians Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He was born a Jew, reared a Jew, educated and well-instructed in the best of schools as a Jew. He was without fault. But when it came to bias from these, this band of Jews that falsely accused him that, you know, the facts of Paul's life didn't stop them. And he was still captured, and he still had to stand trial. Part of the reason for this is the political climate that added to the anxiety of the Jews. Josephus, the uh, Jewish historian, described this period of time uh, as including intense Jewish nationalism which created this political unrest. One insurrection after another, rebelling against Rome. It challenged Roman authorities who were notorious for being heavy-handed with the Jews. And this special brew increased the Jewish animosity toward Rome. It flamed anti-Gentile sentiment. Add on top of this, the racial animus, that was rife between Jew and Gentile. And you can see why the Jews were were ripe for misinterpreting Paul's actions and his message. You know, you hear all this, and I think, well, you know, you look at our society, and, you know, there's a lot of misunderstanding. There's a lot of uh, division. But this gives us a great opportunity. It's a magnificent thing to think of what the church can be, should be in terms of its love and unity as it brings a, a diverse group of people, diverse in, in race and in economic level and background and political ideology together as one. Ephesians says, so when you are no longer strangers and aliens... But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows as a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together with a into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Notice, members of the household of God. We are a part of the same family, brothers and sisters in the church. Now, you look in your family, and you might have a diversity within even the family in terms of their ideology or political spectrum, but you're thinking, okay, we still have to eat Thanksgiving together. We still come together and give Christmas presents And as a family, you realize there's an extra obligation or responsibility for unity, for love, for grace to be expressed. If you're like me as a parent, sometimes you get with your kids and you might say, you know, when there's some division or there's a conflict, listen, you are brother and sister. You are family. We don't have the option of just hightailing it out of here. We are family. We work a little, you know, extra to make this something to where it's loving and it's a true community. And that's the way we are as a church. We are a household. Is it hard? Yes. Is it diverse? Yes, but that's the beauty of the body of Christ. Unified even with all of these differences. So, looking further at Acts 28, Paul goes on with the case he's making for himself with the Jewish leaders. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. When Roman leaders in Jerusalem and Caesarea looked at the facts of the case, they agreed that Paul was innocent, all right? But political factors entered into the mix. You know, isn't it amazing you look at work, you look at church, you look at society, it's the politics that often sully the thing and and create layers instead of simplifying the process. And the Romans simply didn't want to create bad blood between them and the Jews. And so they didn't want to side with Paul. Even though the examination of the facts did not substantiate the charges the Jews were bringing against him. So he was not immediately set free. Now, I don't think by Paul meeting with them, the Jews or the Romans, was a situation of him just trying to you know, defend himself for his own survival, though I don't think any of us could fault him if he wanted to do that. But rather, his M.O., since he'd come to Christ, was not to do anything to hinder the progress of the gospel. So he didn't want this false charge of the Jews to get in the way of him ministering to other Jews. When Paul's life was on the line with plots to kill him, appealing to Caesar he thought was his way out. And so this was also a vehicle, by the way, don't forget the promise that God had made to Paul that I'm gonna take you to Rome to deliver the gospel. This was after the shipwreck and all this. Paul then says, I had no charge to bring against the Jews. You know, of all the things that we've looked at in the life of the apostle Paul, I don't know that any statement about him Says more than this right here, especially from the book of Acts. You know, it's, it's not that the Jews are undeserving, okay, of, of not being forgiven, you might say. Undeserving of, of justice uh, raining down on their heads because they lied. There was a lot of treachery there. I mean, it reminds me of the words of Jesus on the cross. What did he say? Forgive them because why? They don't know what they do. And Paul says he's not interested in suing them. He doesn't want to bring charges against them. So not only is he not guilty of a crime against the Jews, he was innocent of any ill will or intent toward them. I mean, he's been manhandled and almost killed by a Jerusalem mob. He's been harshly dealt with by the Jewish authorities, but he is showing no bitterness. There's no mention of the treachery of the high priest or the continued attempts to take his life. He's not critical of the Romans either, of Felix or Festus, who we read about in earlier weeks. Paul wanted nothing to get in the way of the Romans and Jews hearing the messianic hope of Israel, the resurrected Jesus. I'm not going to do anything about the Jews. I'm not going to charge them. I'm not going to try to get at them. Now, think about this. Did they ask for forgiveness? No. Did they admit that they were wrong? No. And how many times in my little pea brain have I said, you know what? Why should I try to forgive that person? Because they never asked for forgiveness? You ever thought that? They didn't even admit they were wrong. None of that happened. And he said, you know what? I am not going to bring this charge against them. And yet we think in our head, you know, if I see that son of a gun, I am going to give him, you know. And we replay we, we these things in our head. Forgiveness. It's one of the loveliest phrases in the book of Acts, this phrase. I'm not gonna charge them. Paul had a higher goal in mind than personal vengeance. Had a higher goal in mind than protecting his reputation. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. It is not the absence of people being hateful, that helps us to endure. You know what? Because they're always going to be there. Rather, it is the power of Christ in us, helping us to choose to forgive and not hold it against them for the sake of the gospel. That is what helps you to endure in whatever ministry you are in. And how many people, too, about, including pastors, because of, past hurts that they have received. And how many people have quit serving in a church because they got hurt about something and they waited for somebody to come crawling, to eat some crow, and until that happens, by golly, I'm not gonna serve in a church again. You know how they are, blah, 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 right? And here's Paul saying, I'm not gonna charge him." They wanted to kill him. They stoned him. False charges. I mean, it's like, dude, don't you want to just get him behind the barn and wail on him, you know, just for five minutes, you know? None of that. None of that. Paul had no martyr complex. He would not come to Rome with a death wish. He naturally would have liked to be released and enjoyed a, a long ministry in Rome. But the reason he traveled, the reason he went to Rome, the reason he endured these beatings and false charges was to see people realize the resurrected Messiah. Amen. That was his mission. If you had to define your mission, your God-given Calling to be on this earth? What would you say it is? Just one one little statement. What would it be? Paul even says it was because of that mission, because of my actions and words being related to Christ the Messiah. That's the real reason the Jews have rejected me. I mean, the jealousy of the Jews was rampant because they were losing converts. They were losing people to Christianity. They hated Paul for it. Paul shed light on this motive when he said earlier in Acts 26, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? It's in Jewish theology that God does resurrections with us, so why would we think it some kind of, you know, different thing that Jesus was resurrecting the Messiah. But they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah because he suffered on the cross. They didn't want that kind of Jesus. They wanted somebody who would defeat Rome, deliver them militarily. You know, when we think of all the things going on in our society, I mean, I, I get what some pastors just like, man, let's just, I'd rather be a greeter at Walmart. Than to do this in this time with what do you do with all this racial strife and the, you know, COVID and people are just going nuts and the cancel culture of people if you're not doing this or doing that, you know, mask wearing or not. How do you come out on the the racial stuff, Trump or Biden and a host of others that cancel you out unless you're on their side? What hope would we have? But the church comes and it says, here is a way to unite people. It's the gospel of Jesus. It's not because we all agree politically. not because we all agree on the same sports team. It's not because we all agree on our mode of schooling. not because we all agree to be teetotalers. It's because of the gospel. In a world of protests and social upheaval over issues that I'm not denying the issues. They need to be addressed. I want justice too. I want peace. But the foundation of our hope to get to the root of what ails us individually as a society, as a people, is acknowledging that there is a sovereign God who is Lord of the universe. And he has created a moral order that will bless people if we recognize him and follow it. And then he offers forgiveness for our sins. We can be transformed this way. Janet and I watched a documentary on Frank Sinatra recently, and uh, Walter Cronkite was interviewing him. And, you know, Frank Sinatra was like the man. You know, before Elvis, it was Sinatra. And women married multiple times, affairs, you know, and, it's, and I was surprised. You know, Walter Cronkite goes, you know, w- would you say that the, the morals of the United States has declined? He goes, yes, I would. And Cronkite asks, would you say you have played a part in that? <laughs> and he goes, no, no. You know, what, what do you think a divorce isn't going to add to the moral decline of a nation? He didn't mention, you know, the affairs. He didn't mention all the stuff with the mob, you know, none of that. It was just, you know, one little thing. I'm gonna... But that's who we are as a people, right? That's who we are as a people. And without the moral compass that God provides us, without knowing that we're going to stand before him as a judge, we're all just left to our own self-evaluations, which are pretty, pretty poor. God has brought the church to the earth. And he's saying, I-, I want you to be salt and light by the lives that you live, by loving your neighbor, by sharing the gospel in ways that are culturally relevant. Verse 21, and they said to him, we've received no letters from Judea about you and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you, but we desire to hear from you what your views are for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Now the fact that Jews in Rome were not understanding uh, about Paul, not reporting about Paul, does not mean they had made a decision that he was innocent It just means they were kind of ignorant of it. And there are various reasons why. Maybe Paul's was the first ship to get there after this big storm. Um, Maybe there just wasn't a lot of communication between Rome and Jerusalem. You know, we really don't know why. But whatever the reason, the Roman Jews professed ignorance about Paul and his case. And Paul has done three missionary journeys... And to say as you look at him and you look at his life that he had a a resolve, that's an understatement. Because Paul was on a mission and his life was given to the gospel. And when our lives are given to something beyond our comfort, beyond just how many toys can I gather, sacrifice is welcome because it helps with the mission. I was sharing with our staff recently about a meeting with a pastor I had years ago. It was right uh, in the early 90s. I went down to Little Rock and met with this pastor. Great guy, written several books. His church was exploding. And uh, their church needed to add a parking lot and add a building. And he was talking about this. And he said, yeah, I've asked our leaders and our um, uh, our elders to park a couple blocks away from the church. (laughs) So we can have the the parking near the church for our visitors. In other words, he's saying the leaders are to be the servants, right? It reminds (laughs) me of of a church I went to where the pastor had his Jaguar uh, 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 parked right by the front door where there was, you know, pastor parking only. (laughs) Now, <laughs> not sure that's the image I want to communicate, but I get it, you know. But he said, you know, I asked him to do that. And then he, and then he says this. He goes, okay, hey, we're wanting to build this building. And I said, you know, some of you guys, because it was an affluent church. He goes, some of you have a boat. You have an extra house or two. Uh, you take multiple vacations. And so maybe you could sacrifice some of that at this time. Ask God what you'd have you to give. And I'm just saying, be willing to give it. Dude, that's a little bold. Right? Like, I've never quite brought it to that point, but I got to thinking about it. You know, you know, he's not saying that's what you should do. He's just saying ask God, or wants you to give that. But in terms of comfort and as a consumer, that's a little too bold. But in terms of being on a mission, that sacrifice, sure. Look at the difference that makes what the purpose of our life is. And when you think in terms of the gospel or a mission God has called you to, everything is his, whatever he wants. That's, that's a hard thing, right? I mean, I have this kind of Midwestern um, guilt-ridden code about work. It's what promotes my workaholism. I'm not saying it's healthy. But, you know, even to have nice things, whether it's a car or a house or a vacation, there's always a, a tinge of guilt because, you know, you see people, you hear Russ talk, and it's like, man, you know, I've got a car and I've got this house, and I, they don't get to do any of this stuff. And it's like, Lord, you know, what do, what do you want me to do? And, and so, you know, you have to wrestle with that. I'm not saying it's, it's easy, but those are fair questions to ask yourself as to, what the Lord wants us to, to do with it all. And I think God blesses people with tremendous riches, and they use them for the kingdom. And God bless you for doing that. And that's what I hope Janet and I will be able to do with our, all of our possessions. But when you think of the, in terms of the gospel as a mission that God has called you to, you're willing to sacrifice. Consider the true story of Oscar Schindler, who used his personal wealth to smuggle over a thousand Jews away from the Nazis comfort says that's too much of a risk saving a life says that's a sacrifice worth making when we're on a a mission like that or like the apostle paul sacrifice is welcome what is becoming a christian cost you